It's Thursday heading into a long weekend. We've been talking a bit about Easter chocolate because we have a chocolatier coming up at the end of the show. We thought that'd be a nice way to end the show after talking about war and so forth, that it would be nice to speak to someone who could tell us a bit about what's hot and what's not this year for chocolate. Apparently vegan chocolate's hot. I don't know if I've ever had any. I still eat the thin stuff you buy at the pharmacy, you know, at the drugstore, Cadbury's mini eggs and the cream eggs and all that stuff, you know, the sweet stuff. It's Easter. Let me know what you think. 877-399-9898. 877-399-9898. Let me know who you are, where you are, what your favorite Easter chocolate is. Um, can be something you find at the grocery store, something you can buy all year round, something sweet, something that chocolate snobs might look down on, but it's tasty anyway, or it can be something fancy, whatever you like. Um, Tristan Hopper joins us now. Tristan, how have you been? Thank you. Oh, I've been fantastic. Uh, thanks for having me back. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Tristan Hopper, of course, is a reporter at the National Post. You've been busy this week. I always follow you on Twitter and had a good, uh, had a few good laughs this week. I'm going to ask you about your Titanic story after because that's a big anniversary and that was an excellent story. Uh, but let me talk about Easter. I mean, you, you have kids. Are you all set for a big, big Easter egg hunt? Is that happening yet or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I actually didn't do Easter egg hunts as a child. So this is all a new tradition to me. So, oh, nice. yes, my, my lady is enlightening me to the, the joys of this. So uh, apparently, I mean, if it was up to me, this would just be a grueling ordeal. Um, every <laughs> egg would be carefully hidden and it wouldn't be about, you know, joy and wonder. It would be about, you know, strife and perseverance. So I've been told that's the wrong way to do it. And it's supposed to be really easy to find and fun for the children. So that's what we're going to do. There might be a middle ground there somewhere. You know, you could sort of do it both ways. You could have an obstacle race for some of them, and then you could make others. Uh, yeah, I, could really I was an only child. Yeah. From the boys and just have like a you know, <laughs> difficult mode or something. Exactly. I was an only child, so my Easter egg hunts were all very easy. Oh, okay. <laughs> like I didn't have to didn't have to fight with anyone. You know, so that was uh, yeah. And any favorite any favorite Easter chocolate, or do you just give that a pass altogether? Oh, geez. I guess the ones uh, that are most. Uh, that are just in any kind of shape that I can sadistically eat, um, you know, like, you know, gray, you bite off its ears and then it's so any sort of shape. In, so in preferably shape. animal shape. You know, when it comes chocolate. to chocolate, I mean, I'll eat, I'll eat those weird dollar store rip off chocolate bars where it's like, uh, like those. you know, instead of a Mars bar, it's like a Morris bar or something. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. Any port in the storm, really. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was going to ask you about Elon Musk. Um, we all use Twitter, obviously. Uh, I follow yes. Elon Musk on Twitter. Were you, um, I, I think everyone, I spoke to someone earlier who started, you know, talking about as, as the get out the popcorn moment, the clock strikes 12, they're going to have to put away the ping pong tables at Twitter. Everything changes now. It was pretty interesting. I guess it caught everyone off guard. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, it started with uh, he bought what, 9% of the company and then they offered him a board position. And then he said, uh, actually, I don't want a board position. I want a hostile takeover of the whole company. So, I mean, my theory is Elon Musk gets bored very easily. And it, it's weird. People attribute all these sort of higher motives. to. But it's You know, you saw this with Trump all the time, like, oh, Trump's doing this. So this will happen. And then this will happen. And I was like, no, Trump just kind of says what he's thinking at that exact moment. And that sort of informs what he does. Elon Musk, I don't think is, is quite that impulsive, but I think he's a little impulsive. Uh, so I think, uh, yeah, I, I really just think he's like the rest of us. Uh, something bothered him about Twitter, and then he woke up and realized, oh, I'm the richest man in the world, so I could buy the entire company and fire everyone. And um, I think so. Basically, um, 
I don't know. There was an era when rich guys didn't really do this. Um, so you had like stand-up comedians go up and like, oh, if I had a bunch of money, I'd do this. If I was Bill Gates, I'd do this ridiculous thing. And now we have a rich guy who's actually just doing that. Um, you know, he, he decided one day he was going to build rockets and that ended up working. And then he's going to buy Twitter to sort of out of spite, but that might end up working. Um, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, as I, yeah. as I mentioned, if, if I was Twitter and I didn't want him to take over the company, I would just distract him and be like, oh, we'll meet you in two weeks. And then within that two weeks, he would start some like dinosaur cloning company or something and get distracted and then forget about it. So that, that's you, the strategy. I think if Twitter wants to avoid an Elon takeover. He was at a TED conference in Vancouver today talking about how he uses Twitter on the toilet. Like that's, that was literally what he was talking about. It was interesting. That's their business model. So he, he does understand the company. That's, that's something. Yeah, you speak to people I, who talk, who work at Twitter and they're like, oh, we're helping like, you know, information and you know, democracy and whatever. That's not true. This is a thing you use on the toilet to yell at people. It's, it, it, you know, it applies to our worst impulses. There's nothing good about it. And Elon understands that. I was fascinated to read that you were somewhat disappointed. You thought maybe Twitter was a little middle of the road. Like the idea that Twitter was his, was his next obsession because you're a big one on why not something out there like cloning? I mean, you've got all this money. Do something really fascinating. Yeah. So maybe this is just, uh, yes, the, the really eccentric, like, yeah, yeah. Kind of the, the sci-fi novel, uh, rich guy, like a, a time machine or uh, a Westworld. I just want a Crichton, Michael Crichton novel. Uh, like some kind of amusement park full of robots and the robots go crazy and try to murder the guests, something like that. <laughs> Unle unleash chaos with, with, yeah. with your, with your, with your game. Well, I've always said, and you know, now it's on the radio, so I'm mean, going to look yeah. bad when it happens, but there is going to be a mass casualty disaster caused by Elon Musk. Uh, there was a whole, the, the, the sort of turn of the century, early 20th century robber barons, each of them had something like some union strike where like 40 people got shot. Or uh, right. Henry Clay Frick, I think, caused a dam to collapse and wiped out a few towns. Um, so that hasn't happened for a while. Bill Gates hasn't killed huge quantities of people. But I think Elon is in that. I mean, some of the projects he's putting together, like that tunnel in Las Vegas where electric cars go through it and you can't escape from it. And he's launching space rockets and they're getting more flamboyant. So I, I hope I'm wrong. But it seems to me at some point in the next 20 years, there's going to be a disaster worthy of a Wikipedia page directly attributable to Elon Musk. You're getting a little Icarus, a little Icarus sensation there when you watch this stuff go on? Yeah. I'm like, this, this, yeah. Eventually reality or just, you know, God or fate is, is going to stop this somehow. <laughs> I want to ask you to shift gears a bit, uh, just because I've been following it on Twitter. So it reminded me, what do you make of these, of the big crowds out to see Pierre Poilievre? It's been pretty interesting to see uh, the reaction. Um, obviously, the way social media is structured, you can't really tell what's going on at any of these things. Yeah, and you can't really but tell about crowds. I mean, we had massive yeah. crowds uh, for Freedom Convoy. That's some of the biggest just political crowds I've ever right. seen. And it is, I mean, they make fun of it, like to call it a fringe minority it, it was not this was not representative of a huge swath of the canadian population this was still about under 10 percent. but so yeah big crowds doesn't always mean electability but yeah these are huge crowds for uh any canadian politician rightly so we shouldn't have crowds for politicians i think uh, chris selly my colleague was pointing out like no canadian politicians should have these kind of crowds i mean are there no cinemas are there no music concerts? Are there, like, do anything except go to a political rally. But anyway, yeah, by the standards of Canadian politics, having this many people show up, I mean, he's not Daniel O'Connell. 
um, if anybody gets that 19th century <laughs> Irish reference. Um, but yeah, we don't really do mass rallies. We never have. Um, no. So you, this is this is kind of a weird phenomenon. This is like, oh, I think way back in the 30s, Bible Bill Aberhart in Alberta could get these kind of crowds. He was, uh, yeah, he was like half politician, half um, kind of preacher, and he would have these huge mass rallies and you know talk about. Uh, all kinds of progressive things. Uh, Paul Amber's not nearly as nuts as Aberhart, but uh, yeah, it's it's old-fashioned populism, fill up a tent with people, and um, well, normally you'd be like thrusting your hand in the air and, and something. Paul Amber doesn't really do right. that. It kind of sounds like me with a cold, but uh, yeah, it, it's been a while since we've seen something like this. Usually it's just we- John Ray or someone uh, just kind of, well, I'm built to win, and then, you know, the eight seniors who showed up kind of clap lightly and that we have an election. <laughs> Daniel Coney. Yeah, that, that, that harkens back a long way, Tristan, I think. Isn't that like the 1800s? Uh, that yeah. is, yeah. He's the, uh, the great emancipator, the Catholic emancipator. Yeah, so he sort of opened Indeed. up rates. But his whole thing was he would have mass rallies. So the British wanted yeah. to ignore This went back when I was, so the British wanted to ignore him. Yes. So he would have these huge rallies to freak them out. And this was before yes. microphones, so you would show up. And they're like, oh, that's Daniel O'Connell, like way off in the distance. Like, I can't hear a thing he's saying. <laughs> I suppose, I suppose, I should, I, I should know more about it, given my family name. Um, do you think? I mean, you did an interesting poll about who, which CPC uh, Twitter poll, which CPC candidate is most reminds you most of your dad and Jean yeah, Charest, I think, they, was, well, was, a run, was a runaway winner. Uh, Scott Aitchison, and then the other guy, and then the, so there was three candidates in a row. I mean, it's it's a relatively diverse grouping. So I'm not, um, but uh, there were three candidates in a row that were kind of like 50 something gray haired, you know, 20 pounds overweight, uh, you know, background in finance type things. And I was like, yeah, yeah, these, these guys are, they very closely resemble my father um, and the fathers of all my friends. So yeah, they, they, it did seem to be sort of a dad, dad race uh, at that point. And I've heard this is the most generational uh, divide. Uh, certainly it's the most, uh, the political race that has seen so much of a generational divide than I've ever seen. So basically, everyone I know who's in for Jean Charest is sort of over 50. Everyone I know who's for Pioli Evra is under 40. It does make sense. Yeah. It does make sense. Excuse the baby. We'll take a, uh, yeah, she's, well, she's not a, at all. Not and, at all. And she, she is clearly in the under 40 demographic. She is, she is, and uh, she, she was. She joined us last time too, so it's wonderful to have another hopper on the line, especially one who also is vocal about things, which is uh, which just makes it more fun for me to sit here. Yeah, she's supposed to be talking. She understands English, but she just continues speaking gibberish. So it's kind of like a Chewbacca type situation. I don't know if anybody else's children doing this. We'll have to take a poll to see if anyone else's kids are in the same same situation. We'll take a quick break. Uh, I wanted to ask you about a really fascinating video you put out this week. It is the 110th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. And you wrote something about and did a little video about, about one particular, maybe unlikely survivor. Uh, we'll get to that after this. I'm speaking with Tristan Hopper of the National Post tonight. We're covering all kinds of ground. This was a really interesting thing that you wrote about this week. You even did a nice little video about it. We were going to play the video, then we thought we'll just ask you about it. Um, the head baker on the, I had no idea about this story. The head baker on the Titanic somehow managed to survive in the most maybe predictable and yet unpredictable way. Yeah. So this is, uh, Charles Joppin. And then, uh, so he finds out, uh, that the Titanic struck an iceberg. So he just immediately, 
has like three drinks and then he goes up on deck and it's quite heroically uh he makes sure that there's bread put in all the lifeboats they don't know when rescue ships so he, he makes sure they've got food in case they're out there for a few days um and then he starts um they're having trouble a lot of people don't know about this about the titanic a lot of the lifeboats were sent off uh, half empty um, or half full if you're an optimist, um, because uh, people were, in the initial stages, um, were wary about getting into them. Either they hadn't been able to wake their, make their way up to the top deck, or they thought uh, the ship wasn't going to sink. So uh, Jothan actually just started grabbing people forcefully and throwing them into the lifeboats. Uh, he literally said that at the inquiry. I was just throwing them in, um, thus saving their lives. Um, and then when he's done all this, He's drinking the entire time throughout this. So he's doing all these heroic things well. And he said this at a British uh, inquiry, and I think the American inquiry. And uh, so all throughout this, he's just taking shot after shot of whiskey. Um, So he's really drunk uh, while doing all this. And then um, after all the lifeboats are sent away, so he's stuck on the ship, he's doomed. uh, He starts chucking deck chairs over the side. He's like, well, these float, These, these might help. Uh, and then still drinking, and then he's, the way he describes the sinking, he's clearly smashed out of his mind. Because, um, uh, as many people know, halfway, just before it goes down, the ship breaks in half. And he described it as like it kind of listed a bit, so he's drunk, he does, so drunk he doesn't even know. The ship's broken in half, so it's all violence, screaming, sparks, everything. Um, he seems to be completely calm through this, staggers his way to the back of the ship, right at the stern. So in the movie Titanic, Jack and Rose are right at the back of the ship as it goes down. He was, that's where he literally was. And if you watch right. closely in the movie, they actually depict Charles Joplin on the back. Um, he's, the, he's the guy in Baker's Whites. But anyway, he goes into the water. And most people do not survive more than about 45 minutes um, in the Atlantic. And actually, it was 110 years ago tonight. Right. Uh, almost exactly that particular event. So if you, if you account for the time changes. So right now, 110 years ago, would have been right after the ship had gone down. And this is kind of the darkest part of the disaster. This is before, right at dawn, you have a rescue ship show up, the Carpathia. So this is kind of the part where most people were dead. So the screaming had stopped. And this is just people sitting in lifeboats, uh, you know, wondering what's going to happen to them next. Um, so that's exactly 10 years ago. So anyway, that happened. So you have 1,500 people go into the water. Um, they're dying of exposure. Jobin is so drunk. Um, he doesn't appear to know that his life is in any danger. So uh, he goes into the water, paddles around for as long as two hours, uh, given that the Titanic was down about 2.20, and he says it's around dawn he's able to see an overturned lifeboat and crawl onto it. So that's, that's upwards of two hours in the North Atlantic, um, just kind of paddling around. Gets out of the overturned lifeboat, uh, survives the night, gets onto uh, the Carpathia. He warms himself up in an oven. No ill effects. So this is effectively impossible you shouldn't be able to survive that long in the Atlantic without any special equipment, without any special training. And I asked, this a few years ago when I did the story, I asked experts on hypothermia how this had happened and was it the booze? And they said, no, no, don't, don't okay, if you're on a shipwreck, don't get drunk. Uh, that's, that's a bad idea. Usually it actually makes hypothermia worse. But um, there's two things he did. Number one, he delayed immersion, so he stayed with the vessel as long as possible so he didn't go into the water. You're supposed to do that in any shipwreck. And number two, he just stayed calm. He was so drunk, he didn't realize, he didn't feel the water. I mean, what you normally have, what happened to most other people, you go into the water, that ice-cold water hits you, 
Um, it's a horrible sensation if anybody did a, a polar bear swim. That hits you. You start panicking. You're flailing around. You're sinking into the water. You're drowning out of panic. And you just kind of lose your head. And you've got about 20, 30 minutes before you're dead. Um, if you're drunk off your ass and you have no idea you're going to die soon, um, you can keep your head about you and just kind of paddle around, not thinking about it, until you find a way to save yourself. So um, normally you shouldn't be drunk at sea, but this is a one circumstance in which this guy being really, really, really drunk meant that against all odds he survived the sinking of the Titanic. Intoxication is bliss at times. How did you find out about this guy? I I read about him. I've I've actually read all the uh, the Titanic inquiry. Um, uh, it's <clears throat> yeah, it, it's something that, it, it, the disaster is something I've read quite a lot about. So there's there's a few sort of angles like this when you really dig into the details of the disaster that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, but yeah, this is one that's particularly interesting and, and sort of stuck with me. And it's it's a good story to spread around because you know if this is spread around enough. You know, oh. maybe some shipwreck victim will hear it and save themselves as a result. Yeah. I think your daughter's telling us to change topics now. So oh, yeah, yeah. She, <laughs> she took an entire container of tea and somehow threw it at her sister. So anyway, we, we'll just soldier on. We'll forget we will soldier on. I only have a couple of minutes left. Um, I, I know you're a big Gilbert Gottfried fan. We spoke to Mark Breslin this week, uh, who told us these fascinating stories about Gilbert Gottfried first coming to Canada in the late seventies, uh, sight and, and, and flying sort of coming to Toronto on his first ever flight. Um, and just what it was like to know him as a young, apparently he used to do contortionism in his early acts, something that. Oh yeah. And a very, very been, good, um, very good impressionist. And yep. what I always loved about Gilbert is he, he's just kind of an old fashioned, he, he was like from a different era in certain, he's like a vaudeville performer. Because, uh, I mean, that's not his real voice, obviously. He has a normal voice. Um, but just like a performer from the early, you know, late 19th century, he sort of picked a persona and stuck with that his whole life, um, which always fascinated me. He just seemed like the inveterate old-timing sort of lived his, uh, his life as a comedian was, and was one through and through. Yeah, I think I think what Mark Brosnan said again and again was that he was really truly devoted to comedy. That's what he was there for. Uh, despite you know, obviously he played the you know he did the voice of the parrot and Aladdin and other things. Did what he had to do uh, to make a living. Tristan Hopper, I wish you a nice long weekend. I hope the uh, egg hunt, uh, Easter egg hunt, is not uh, too challenging for the kids. And I look forward to hearing all about it next time we talk. Marvelous! Thanks for having me.